Welcome to the small open economy section of macroeconomics. This is Dr. Terry Eland coming to you from home to wherever you are. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the economic ride. So, this topic here is a topic that puts a lot of the things that we've seen together. And it can be complicated for some, so I definitely suggest taking the time to listen, to look at the videos, and maybe do it once or twice just to make sure it sticks. At the end of the day, the thing that you have to start understanding is all the different links involved and how certain changes in society can have like multiple impacts. So how one thing can change that leads to another change that leads to another change that leads to another change. Up to this point, we've talked about the idea when we introduced the foreign exchange and trade, we talked about the idea that net exports has to be equal to net capital outflows. And that was the big picture there to, to make sure that there is an equilibrium uh, because otherwise you have a situation where someone's getting kind of like screwed over in this whole picture. So if you're exporting more, it means that you're getting more foreign assets at the same time. Well, what drives the purchase of domestic assets and foreign assets, if we think from a saver's perspective, well, what drives that is interest rates. So if we put aside that equality for a second, let's just try to see what other thing could kind of establish what's the actual le level of net capital outflow. So if you think of uh, you have a certain amount of saving, just think about yourself and you want to put this money aside to generate interest rate and interest. Well, in that situation, if you can get 5% on a risk-free asset in Canada, well, if you were to get 5% elsewhere, you would be quite indifferent between the two. But if you could get 7, 8, 9% uh, real interest rate in another country, so interest rate that's adjusted for inflation on the expectation of the duration of this asset, well, you have a situation where you're getting more interest elsewhere than here, so it makes more sense for you to buy foreign assets, treasury bills, bonds, whatever, in another country because they will generate a higher revenue for you, a higher level of interest. And if, on the other hand, the interest rate was lower elsewhere than it is in Canada, well, foreigners would have an incentive to bring their savings to Canada and to uh, generate interest in Canadian assets. So if you keep that in mind, you could start by thinking about that kind of supply and demand, supply of savings and the demand for uh, investment that we've seen in the past. And typically, if you think of that graph that we've had in that past with that upward sloping supply curve, downward sloping demand curve, well, the equilibrium point was an equilibrium interest rate in Canada. Well, now that we have a world interest rate and Canada is seen as a small open economy. So this is something that means that we're such a small player in the whole grand scheme of things in the world that we don't have an influence on the world interest rate. If we were studying in the U.S. right now, we wouldn't be able to assume the same thing. The U.S. is a large open economy. Canada is a small open economy. So that's what we're looking at from the Canadian perspective. So. Keeping that in mind, if you look at that graph, we have the equilibrium interest rate if we were in a closed economy where the supply curve and the demand curve intersect. 
But if you introduce a world interest rate that is above that level, well, it's the example I just gave of you can have 5% interest in Canada or 7% abroad. Well, naturally, market forces will make it that uh, you're going to supply that saving more abroad. So if you look at the graphs that you'll see at that disequilibrium point, you'll have the if you were to draw a straight line across at a higher interest rate, you'd see that the demand for investment where it intersects with the demand curve will be lower. So it means that there's less local investment and then the supply of savings is greater. So there's a gap between the two, which would not be possible in a closed economy. You, you'd always have market forces bringing us back to the equilibrium point. But in reality, this gap now is the amount of money that's flowing out to purchase foreign assets. So that distance between the supply curve and the demand curve at that world interest rate is in that capital outflow. If the interest rate is above the uh, equilibrium closed economy interest rate, well then you have money flowing out because we have a greater supply of savings by Canadians, national saving which is public and private, than the demand for investment. And if it was set below, it would be the opposite. You'd have a greater demand for investment than the supply of savings locally. Therefore, there is money flowing in. So it'd be a net capital inflow or negative net capital outflow. So that's another way to see how net capital outflow is determined. And at this point, you might think, well, net capital outflow could be determined by that gap between savings and investment, but it could also be determined by net exports. How does this work? Which one do I choose? Well, in reality, they're all equal to one another in equilibrium. And this is where it could get confusing in the sense that you're wondering which of the two strategies to use. It depends what information you have available to you. But if in this example here, the world interest rate were to go up, our net capital outflow were to go up, but our net exports would also go up as well. And we'll see how that works when we start introducing like all the other parts of the picture and this kind of analysis. But if you just think about it simply, if we have a higher net, uh, a higher world interest rate, there's more money flowing out of the country. We're going to start looking at what drives the value of a currency. Well, if there's more money flowing out, the money where the, that money is flowing to there's going to be an increase in demand for that currency, so the value of their currency is going to go up, which means that the value of our currency is going to go down. As that happens, as the value of our currency goes down, well, our exports suddenly become cheaper because it's cheaper to buy our currency. So we expect our exports to go up, and now it's also more expensive to buy imported goods because our currency is worth less, therefore imports goes down. So. If you think about that higher interest rate, world interest rate, it leads to an increase in net exports in Canada because our exports are more favored and our imports are less uh, favored because they're more expensive because there's been a decline in the value of our currency. So this increase in the world interest rate led to an increase in net exports and that could also be seen on the diagram I just described earlier that shows an increase in net capital outflow. So. What we've learned about net capital outflow being equal to net exports still applies, but we want to understand uh, how this kind of story can start. So there's many ways this story can start. We can start from a, uh, an equilibrium situation and say, for some reason, 
the demand for exports because we produced a vaccine that cures or prevents the, the ability of having any kind of disease or whatever. Well, in that situation, exports would go up and everything else would kind of fall into place afterwards. But it could also be that what's driving this change in net capital outflow and net exports is actually a change in the world interest rate. Could also be a change in one of these uh, demand or supply curves. So you have to understand what the equilibrium state is. And if you look at that graph and you have the world interest rate, you see the net capital outflow and you know that it's equal to net exports, that's our initial point. And then you could look at it from anything that changes. We have an increase in uh, public deficit because the, the government's spending a lot more money. It's a decrease in savings. Well, what's going to happen there? The supply curve's going to shift left. And what are all the other implications afterwards? Well, you could look at it. Just look at the graph. You'll see that NCO becomes smaller. If NCO becomes smaller, net exports become smaller, and so on and so forth. So just kind of make sure that you understand the initial links. And then when you have a news event that changes something, have it change like the things that you kind of see in that initial picture and then kind of make it go bigger and bigger. And that's what I said. This is a chapter that could seem as complicated because there's a lot of things going on at the same time. And when we think about the value of a currency, uh, there's different ways of representing it. Uh, I'd suggest the second way, which I so show in the videos. That's the alternative way in the slides that is blank. And um, or you could use the way that's in the textbook. Uh, I just prefer the way that's represented in other textbooks. And in all, if we think the value of a currency, what drives up the value of a currency? Well, if people are demanding for that currency, it's going to drive up its value. It's like the value. What determines the value of gold? Well, if more people want to buy gold, it's going to drive up its value. If more people are selling gold, it's going to drive down its value. So why would people want Canadian currency or another currency? Well, they'll want your currency either to buy goods or assets. So as soon as there's people coming from Germany with their euros wanting to buy Canadian assets or wanting to buy Canadian goods, in either case, they need Canadian dollars to do so. And as they do so, they're driving up the demand for Canadian currency, which will drive up its value. So those are the main things that will drive up or down the value of a currency. There's also some level of risk-taking speculation uh, going on in the markets. It's not just pure and uh, simple like any other stock. Like there'll always be like different driving forces bringing up the value for uh, reasons that are hard to explain other than just a bunch of people deciding to buy that stock because they think it should be valued more or it's starting to go up and everyone's kind of jumping on the bandwagon. But in reality, what drives up and down the value of a currency is the demand for that currency or the supply of that currency. And that is based on exports and imports and uh, demand for assets. So you have a series of examples that you kind of go through in the notes that go through different uh, situations that will drive up or down the value of the currency. And then afterwards, when we think of different exchange rates, well, Typically, in most countries, we have what we call a flexible exchange rate, which means that the value of the exchange rate can fluctuate from one day to the next or one minute to the next. But in certain countries, they decided to keep the exchange rate fixed. 
if you think about 30 years ago, well, the euro didn't exist and uh, every country had their own currency. Well, one day when they decided to kind of reunite and to have many countries with the same currency, well, between their borders, they kind of fixed the, this exchange rate or they made this currency valid on a larger uh, piece of land than just a country specific. So that's one way to see it. But also the whole idea of fixed exchange rate happened with Mexico and it's kind of happening with China as well. And it's the situation that if a country does not, uh, is not confident in their banking system and they don't want to let the value of their currency get out of hand, they can try to fix their currency to another currency to try to create some stability. And uh, there's a lot of information on that, on how it works, uh, which is just easier to see uh, graphically and to understand. But at the end of the day, the big picture here is that when you want to keep your currency fixed to another currency, you have to buy and sell some of your currency to keep its value close to the predetermined level. And it is sustainable to keep your currency undervalued because for you to do so, you have to keep on selling some of your currency to kind of drive down its value and to satisfy other countries' demands for it. But to keep your currency artificially high or strong is not sustainable because for you to do that, you have to constantly be buying Canadian currency by selling some of your foreign reserves and you will run out of foreign reserves. Whereas if you're constantly buying foreign reserves and selling Canadian currency, well, since you have access to the printing presses, you will never run out of Canadian currency or your domestic currency. So it's just something to keep in mind along this whole kind of picture. Um, at the end of the day, there's a lot of examples going through this. Just kind of always take a second Go to that initial point where you have your equilibrium, your initial situation, an initial domestic rate if we were in a closed economy, initial world rate, and then that leads to a certain level of net capital outflow, certain level of net exports, and then look at the news event, think what's going to change, which of these markets will kind of initially change, and how will that trickle to other markets afterward. I hope you enjoyed this segment. Uh, there's a lot more covered in the slides and the videos. Take a look. Make sure you understand. If you have any questions, reach out. Otherwise, talk to you soon.